Well, good morning and welcome to New Covenant Fellowship. And um, we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Appreciate everybody that made your way to this place of worship this morning and to participate in our tradition of flowering the cross. And it, it never ceases to amaze me how well that that simple act exemplifies who and what Christ did for us. It starts out bare and Christ was stripped bare. And then by the time we're finished, it just comes to life with a variety of textures and colors and aromas. And it symbolizes the abundant, satisfying life that Christ has gained a victory for us because he walked out of that tomb. It's just a beautiful symbol and ceremony to take part of. Well, this is Resurrection Day, and we are going to go to God's Word and look at the resurrection. But rather than going back to the Gospels, which is what I usually do, and reading about the resurrection as it unfolded, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach this morning and look at the resurrection after it happened. So rather than going into the Gospels, we're actually going to be in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to hear a message, Peter's first message about Christ. And, and it's a commentary of what it meant, what it means that Christ rose from the dead after the fact. It's good to get that perspective. So I need to bridge the gap from the resurrection day to the time that Peter gives his first sermon about the resurrection. Now, Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. And when he rose from the dead, he appeared to many people, Scripture tells us, on and off. He'd appear, he'd disappear, he'd appear, he'd disappear, and he appeared to his disciples. And he continued really to minister to them and to prepare them for the mission that he has for them. And he did this for about a period of 40 days after the resurrection. He kind of hung around before he ascended. And then about the 40th day after the resurrection, he ascends to the Father and he takes his rightful place at the right hand of God, exemplifying all power and authority to reign and rule as Christ. And then there's about another 10 days before the sermon was preached, because before he ascended, he tells his disciples, you have to wait. Do not leave Jerusalem. You need to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled. And so the disciples hung around obediently for a change. They obediently uh, hung around in Jerusalem and they were in a room together for approximately 10 days. Not that they didn't leave that room for 10 days, but they didn't leave Jerusalem. They hung around there. And this particular day, 50 days after Christ rose from the dead on Pentecost, the promised Holy Spirit comes and he comes in that room in full force. Just this week, we had a tornado warning and the winds began to kick up. Well, they had their own little Holy Spirit tornado in that room because he came in. Scripture says like a rushing wind and lit upon them like tongues of fire. So you have wind and fire and the Holy Spirit indwelled them. And that is significant because they had to wait. They couldn't go out and continue the ministry of the kingdom because you can't minister for the kingdom of God without the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit has to change our lives and he has to empower us in order to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so they waited and the Holy Spirit came and now they are ready. The promise has been fulfilled. And this is where we pick up is right after the Holy Spirit has filled these disciples in this room. We'll see the effects and of what the Holy Spirit does in them. And then we want to pay very close attention to what comes out of Peter's mouth because the Holy Spirit's in him. And this is inspired. This is what God wants us to hear. All of his disciples, all the people of the world. This is what he wants us to hear. So let's read our text this morning as Peter proclaims these words to all listeners under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. By the way, they gathered and they're wondering what's going on with this Holy Spirit. And they were speaking in their own language and tongues. And they were puzzled over how in the world can these guys be speaking in my language. So there's an uproar over here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added to that day about there were added that day about three thousand souls. And that's a lot to take in. I'm not going to cover it thoroughly as I usually do. I'm going to simplify this message into three main points of what Peter is communicating. He's basically saying you killed him. God raised him. You need to save yourselves. In essence, from the wrath of God. Let's look at the first point. You killed him. Jesus says this twice. There's thousands of people there he's speaking to. Verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, how can Peter say to all these people there that you crucified the Lord? You put him to death. I mean, there are thousands. We know that 3,000 came to Christ that day. So there had to have been a lot more than that. Jerusalem is, is bustling with people. It's Pentecost. So many, many people there. Now, how can he say that they were the ones in particular that took part in crucifying Christ? Is he emotionally worked up to where he's exaggerating and blaming this terrible death on everybody? Where's their credence to what he says? It's very possible that... Very likely that not all of those that were there at Pentecost happened to be there during the crucifixion. They didn't all say crucify him and play a part in that. As a matter of fact, it's very likely that some of them weren't even there that day. And Peter says, you crucified him. How can that be true? Here's how. Peter's not making the assertion that every one of you took part physically in the physical death and helped hold the nail and helped drive it in and, and, and helped with the beatings and riling up the crowds, saying of crucify him, laying hands on him. But he is accusing him, them of rejecting Christ to the point of his death. They rejected Christ. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Or to put it another way, to fail to accept Christ as God the Father presented him to the world is to crucify him. It's to throw him to the side. It's to disrespect him. It's to, well, it's to reject the very Son of God. And this will become clear if you follow me for a moment as as we unfold Peter's words. The, the Jews condemned Christ for what? Blasphemy. And they got all worked up and angry because they accused him of saying, you are claiming to be God. And that is blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy? Because you are not God. And so they put him to, to death. They rejected him as not God. And they put him to death. 
to reject Christ as not being who he says he is, to reject Christ as not embracing him as the father sent him. And as he missioned and pilgrimed through this world. Is to be guilty. Now, the Jews were the instigators and the Romans were the the uh, the executors. The Jews would have executed him, but they weren't allowed under Roman law. Capital punishment. Sometimes they did it anyway. And then they picked and choose when they were going to follow the law. And in this case, they had to hand him over to the Romans. Peter says, you crucified him. You did not embrace the Christ whom God sent into the world. Matthew chapter 1230 says, he who is not for me is against me. So those that perhaps never laid a hand on Christ. Peter says, you're guilty of crucifixion. Those who perhaps would say, I don't have a beef with him. How could I be guilty of this? Guilty of crucifying Christ. And so really nobody can wash their hands. Because God specifically sent Christ to us. For very specific purposes so that he would be embraced as God presented him to us. That's Peter's sermon right there. So what we want to do to bring this to life even more, because some of you might be thinking, I I hear you, but I don't hear you. What Peter does in the sermon is he he shows how God the Father treats Christ. He shows how. God the Father thinks about Christ and presents Christ. And then how man thinks about Christ. And it's the exact opposite. How man treats Christ. And when we see what God thinks about Christ, and then what man thinks about Christ, we will clearly see how the Jews indeed rejected him. And perhaps even ourselves. And how those that were not even born When Christ died and rose again, can be guilty. Do we join God in the affirmation of Christ? Or do we stand against him? So Peter presents four ways, five ways that God affirms his son, loves his son, affirms his son, endorses his son. And as we look at those five ways, we will be challenged in our own hearts and minds. Do I affirm Christ like that? Because to be not before him is to be against him. The first thing Peter says in this very first sermon. And by the way, this is when most scholars say the church was officially born. When the Holy Spirit, he gave his people the Holy Spirit to do the work of the church. To continue the work of Christ. And that's why the book of Acts has a really awkward ending to it. Because the whole idea is that, well, the mission's not finished yet. We're still in the age of the mission of Acts. And the ministry of Christ. So first he presents his son and endorses his son through signs and wonders. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
So Peter is saying, look, God sent his son with wonders, signs and miracles. And that was his way of attesting that this is my son. This is God. This is everything that I am. Everything you see in him is everything that I am. And it's, it's a proclamation from heaven to earth. This is my son. Look at what he can do. Marvel at him. Be a, it's an announcement from God. God is excited, if you will, to present and endorse his son to the world like this. It's his validation. It's his certificate of authenticity, if you will. Shouting to the world, I endorse my son. He is all that I promised that he would be. When he stilled the storms, when by his words he cast out demons, all of those heavenly supernatural powers are my way of attesting to you, world, my affirmation for my son. That's what he is to me. So he grandly endorses him and embraces him. Second, by planning his atoning death. Verse 30, 23, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so God delivered his son up. And you think, well, that's not an endorsement. That's a betrayal. If God gave him into the hands of lawless men that caused his, truck, that caused his death, how could that in any way be honoring to his son? An endorsement of any kind. Well, it's because through that death, through bringing him low, he is able to lift him high. Because by bringing him low, as Luke tells us in 24, 26, that forgiveness of sins can be preached to all peoples, to all nations. And so by putting into the, him into the hands of evil men, where they take him down, Christ is then able to raise him up, which gives him the power and the authority to offer the forgiveness of sins, to bring children into the kingdom of God. The death isn't a betrayal. It's a calculated plan actually to lift his son even higher, because now the world knows who he is. He is the, the lamb without blemish. He is the holy one. He is the loving one. He is the one that stayed the course on the cross and bore the wrath of God so that we could be brought back into right standing with God the Father. All of this was for the joy of God's Son. And as I thought about God's plan of redemption and how the Scriptures were crying out even from the very beginning of time that this isn't just for this ethnic people, it's for every people group. And when those words were preached in the Old Testament, there were what we would call pagans. And, and you know, you, you have to look hard for pagans today like what we find in the Old Testament. But we're talking about a people that have very little clue of the real true God. And they live very impoverished and very twisted and very perverted. And they just worship all kind of things. And it's animism and, and every kind of ism you can Think of and cannibalism and all this stuff. And the Old Testament prophets said there will come a day as twisted up as your thinking is and far off that you will bow the knee and worship the true God. You will come to a realization of what life is all about. And that happened 
through Christ. And it happens today. As Christians go into all the world and they confront other religions and other people that are clueless to God. And you think there is no way in the world there will ever come a time when these deprived people will actually get it. And there does come a time. Because the power of the Spirit is here. And continues to be here. And that message goes throughout all the world. And that is our hope as Nisi sung about in the offering. Christ is our hope. The gospel really is true. And it really does work. And the Holy Spirit really does turn light bulbs onto minds. That were dark. He did it to me. Mine was pretty dark. Changed the heart. Transformed the mind. All because of this affirmation. It's this plan of redemption. We are living in it today. Third way that God endorsed his son is by raising him from the dead. Verse 24. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. I love that word. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter says, you killed him. You were against him. God raised him. And by the way, look, look at the difference of how God treats his son and then how we here on earth treat him. Do we have the high view of Christ that he deserves? We take his breath. God gives it back. We, we take his blood. God gives it back. We rob him of his dignity. God Restores it all. It's, it's this clash. You see Peter showing. Here's what you do with Christ. Here's what God does with Christ. Here's what you think of him. Here's what God thinks of him. There's this tension building in this sermon. This whole time. Eyes are being opened. People are starting to feel sick under conviction. Based on the truth of Peter's message. Because of the, the opposites. This, this clash. In how we have failed to embrace Christ. And so the people were thinking as Peter preached, and perhaps we might be thinking the same thing this morning. Am I at odds with Christ? Are there areas in my life that I have not embraced him for who he really is and for who God sent him into the world to be? His accusations very straightforward. And you can imagine no wonder at the end of this passage, it says, and people were cut to the quick. Who's like poking him in the eye? They were they were it's conviction. It's that sick feeling, nauseous feeling like, oh, my gosh, I am in trouble because what he says is true. And these were a people that that prided themselves on worshiping God. And Peter's saying, actually, you rejected him. You didn't just reject him. You put him under. You put him down. So you can imagine the awakening of somebody who thought they were the cream of the crop and. And had it all down to find out they were the very ones who actually had nothing. We're, we're anti-God. So we have two more to go, but you, you can see why at the end of this sermon that they were cut to the heart. They were feeling their sins. You know, it's a good thing to feel our sins. And that's what Peter's, Peter's approach and message is and Really, the whole foundation of Christianity, the beginnings of it, is that we need to feel our sin and realize our sins so that we can experience the grace of God, the forgiveness of sin. 
Peter doesn't mince words. So are we for Jesus like God is for Jesus? Another way, fourth way, is by exalting him overall. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David saw this with prophetic eyes. God exalts his son to the right hand, this place of special honor and points him as Lord, as King, as Christ. So what God does is he lifts him up to this place of utmost supremacy, the highest of the high. He lifts him as high as a being can possibly go in this created order. Supremacy. His enemies put him in a dark place, put him in a place of shame. God lifts him to the highest place of power and honor. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, verse 36, not just know, but know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Look how God looks at Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the supreme one. He deserves all honor and worship and adoration and absolute obedience. He deserves our joy, our all. Everything should should rally around this Christ. Is that how our lives exemplify what we say we know and believe? Because the way we view Christ, to the degree that we view Christ, what happens is it comes out of our bodies. Now, the Jews thought they had it all together. But what was coming out of them was evil and it was anti-God. You see how this message confronts the world. Not just the Jews, but the world, all of us, with what are we doing with Christ? How do we think about Christ? Who is he to us? Because to not have him on the throne, to treat him as the king that he is, is to repudiate him, to reject him, to crucify him, and in essence say, You're a fake. They did not hail him as the God that he was presented. And last, as the giver of the Holy Spirit, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received him from the Father, from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God is so pleased with the Son that He pours the Spirit upon Him without measure. Just full throttle Spirit. And Christ, in return, because He has received that gift, He pours the Spirit on His disciples, on His church, so that we can receive the same power, the same blessing, the same comfort, all of the benefits that the person of the Holy Spirit brings with himself come into us. And we, we have access to these. We, we learn to adjust our lives to keep in step with the Spirit, the Apostle Paul says. Even today, God's Spirit is given in good measure. And we are blessed by it. So you see all that is at stake here. 
The way that God absolutely affirms that Christ is everything he says he is and everything that he does. Christ is God. And as they hear these words, they realize that they have to make the decision. Is he God to us or not? It's the same decision we have to make today. Is he the God that God the Father presents him as? What is he to us? Because anything less than as the Father presents him in Holy Scripture falls short. Are we with him or against him? That's the first point. The two will go quicker. Peter says God raised him. He raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for, possible for him to be held by it. Now, we have learned that God raised him as an affirmation of this is my son. He's legitimate. But there's something else at work here that runs deep into the, the veins of the created order. It's what C.S. Lewis would, would call deep magic. Just things that happen in this universe, and they happen for a reason, and we can't always connect the dots, but they run deep, and they're going to happen because that's the way things were created to happen. And we find that in this little passage, this verse here. I won't spend much time on it because we've looked at it in other places, but Peter is saying it is impossible. It's impossible based on the way God designed things based on the way you're designed, based on the way the dirt and the earth is designed, it's impossible for the ground to hold Jesus down in a place of death. It just cannot happen. Why? Because the ground, which was designed to hold people down, has never had anything like Christ come into it. It's never, ever happened in the history of humanity. Because Christ went into the ground, but Christ was sinless. And the ground had never had any human being that was sinless. Now, Christ took our sins upon himself. He bore them and he bore the wrath of God. But Christ himself was absolutely perfect. And the ground doesn't know what to do with perfect because the ground wasn't designed to hold perfect down. And so what does the ground have to do? Spit them out. The ground had a power of death given it by God. And it's a real power and it holds everybody down. Nobody escapes it except one. Jesus Christ. And so in the essence, if the ground could have a conversation with it, with itself, is what do we do? <laughs> this is not normal. We, I have no power. He's moving. He's living. He's coming back to life. A blood is coursing back through his body. What do we do? We can't hold him down. We got to let him go. So Christ comes back to life and he walks out of that tomb because he is a righteous man. And death, as powerful as it is, cannot keep a righteous man down. I love what David prophesies about in verse 26 you find it even in the old testament it's this hope even in job my redeemer live it's this hope that god wants us to have based on what he has done through christ and we don't have it yet but we know it will come and it's the hope of a personal resurrection 
because we have placed our faith in Christ. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Do you realize that if you have renounced your sin and put your faith in the resurrected Christ, that your flesh also, if you will, will be spit out of the ground and raised up with Christ into the heavens? Because when Christ puts that robe of righteousness on us, the ground has no grip upon us anymore. There's no sin to hold us down. And so it lets us go and spits us out. And that's why Jesus referred to himself like Jonah in the belly of the big fish. After three days, it's time to get out of here. And after three days, the ground spit him onto dry land or perhaps better said, Spitting back into the land of the living so that he can walk among them. And we have that same hope. There's nothing in this world more powerful than death. Except for, I know you first graders in Sunday school, you're thinking, God, God's more powerful than death. All right, but that's understood. There's nothing in this world more powerful than death. And you say, wait a minute. What about nuclear bombs? I mean, they can they can wipe out portions of the globe in one act. That's powerful. What about the tyrants and the despots that have wiped out populations? What about calamities and diseases and, and famines that have just wiped leveled populations and Hundreds of thousands of people all at one time. That's power and floods and fires. And we still see these things today. How can anything be more powerful than that? We can't save ourselves from these things. No death. That's just death. It's not more powerful than death. That is death. Now, a fire or a calamity might bring it in a larger quantity. It might bring it sooner than expected. What's the rate? But it does not in any way increase the ratio of death. What is the ratio of death? One to one. So these things that we think are so powerful, they just play into what is powerful, and that is death. One death for every one person. Tragedies don't have the power over death. Nobody escapes death nobody but Jesus Christ he came out the ground cannot hold him never swallowed anything like that before gave him up Peter says you killed him God raised him and then lastly save yourself that's the conclusion save yourself When Peter heard this, when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do I do? What do I do? And they say, repent and be baptized. Believe in Christ as God has presented him. What I want to point out here as we close. is that this is the Christian message. This is the message of the church. You crucified him. God raised him. Save yourselves. Be saved, renounce your sins, and run to Him. Because you can't escape Him. You can't run away from Him. Sooner or later, the day of reckoning comes. 
And all these people, even though they came from different places, perhaps different nations, I mean, Jerusalem had people from all over, obviously, because that's why the speaking in tongues was such a big deal. They may have been Jews, but they didn't all necessarily speak Hebrew or Aramaic. So they came from different cultures, different belief systems, and this this message reached through all of them and spoke to their hearts. And that's how the gospel message works. And 3,000 that day turned to Christ. The thing I want to point out about this sermon is that Peter is speaking matter-of-factly. And that's what the gospel message is. It's a witness. Peter is speaking as a witness. I saw these things. These are facts. It's, it's not like this great idea the disciples came up with. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if life worked like this and people just, like there was this God that, that, that had a relationship with us and we could follow these rules and... This isn't something that man came up with. This is a fact. It was an idea that came from the man mind of God. Not it's not a philosophy. It's not man seeking something. This idea came to him and he is a witness. And so it's presented as a fact. And the gospel presented as a fact, in essence, is Christ came to this earth. And he lived a perfect life. By the hands of man, he was crucified. By the power of God, he was lifted up. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And Peter's saying the wrath of God will not be held back forever. The dam has burst. Save yourselves. Not just an option. Not just an idea. It's a fact. It's a truth. And that is the gospel message. That is the essentials and the foundation of the church. And Keller writes, the Christian message says, Jesus Christ, our mighty captain, has broken through. He has opened a cleft in the walls of the universe. And you need to go through it to God. Because someday God is going to come through it to the world. For the dam has burst. You killed him. God raised him. Save yourselves. Worship Christ as king. That was the first message of the church. And it remains the relevant message of the church to this very day. Let us entrench ourselves in the worship of this Christ as a kingdom outpost here in Nottoway County. Let us be the worshipers that affirm him day after day as God affirms his son. So may God bless the preaching of his word. And that's the resurrection and the impact of the resurrection after it happened. And we're going to be treated to and ministered to by a song from the Hill Girls as they come forward. That tell us about the resurrection in essence how it happened or As it happened, he's alive. He's alive. Hallelujah. I'm forgiven. Christ is alive. Amen.